The Messiah, the Savior, is coming. Mary believed this 2,000 years ago when the angel Gabriel told her that she, a virgin, would conceive and that the Lord God will give to the child the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary believed. And at that same time, old Simeon believed this, that Luke tells us in chapter 2 that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Mary and Simeon believed because God had promised such a savior king again and again and again over the centuries. He had promised 700 years before Mary and Simeon, speaking through Isaiah as we read in our call to worship, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Then contemporary with Isaiah, 700 years about before the birth of Jesus, God promised through Micah that from Bethlehem shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That promise had been in existence even before Micah spoke and would be fulfilled 700 years later. So a thousand years or more before Isaiah and Micah spoke, God promised To Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God promised. He repeated the promise. Again and again, he repeated the promise. And his people waited eagerly. As the people suffered from so many bad kings, as empires rose and fell all around them, as their nation went into exile and then only a small proportion of those returned 70 years later. Over the years, some in Israel abandoned that hope in their promised Savior, their promised King. But the faithful remnant continued. They continued to wait, to be expectant, continued to pray, continued to believe in the one who was promised. And then Mary gives birth to Jesus in Bethlehem as foretold. He grows. He increases in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. He's baptized by John. He comes publicly proclaiming, the time is fulfilled. What you have waited for is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel. 
And so Paul writes in today's text in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Well, this morning, we'll examine that great statement of the Apostles Paul's and a bit of the surrounding context. Our goal is threefold this morning. First, that we too might obey Jesus' initial proclamation, repent and believe the gospel. Second, that we, seeing our status as sons and heirs, might live out the glorious freedom of the children of God. And then third, having received his promise, surely I am coming soon, that we might be like that faithful Jewish remnant, waiting eagerly, expectantly, hastening the return of our great Savior, King Jesus. We'll get to those goals. But to understand Paul's statements in Galatians 4, we need first to understand Paul's use of the words law and slavery. So that'll be the first section, law and slavery. And then, second section, what happened in the fullness of time? And then third section, children of God. So first, law and slavery. Paul says, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. What does that mean, under the law? Jesus is born under the law. We are under the law. What is the law? Well, we've said many, many times over these last 20 years that the law is a reflection of God's character. The law answers the question, what does God's character look like in humans living in a fallen world? What does it look like to be like God, to show what he is like when you're a human living in this world after the fall? As Jacob indicated last week when preaching on Mark chapter 10, going through the motions, just checking off boxes, yes, I did this, I did that, I did that, perfunctory obedience was never the point of the law. That's not God's character. God's character is not displayed when we simply check off a list of things we didn't do or things we did do. Rather, what the law is getting at always from the very beginning is an interchange producing outward effects, an interchange producing outward effects on behavior and attitude. As God changes our hearts and thus expresses who he is through us. Recall in last week's sermon text, as Jacob brought out, that that young ruler asked the question, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as Jacob rightly said, that's the wrong question. He thought he had to do something to make himself acceptable before God. He misunderstood the gospel. Indeed, Paul addresses that same misunderstanding throughout his letter to the Galatian churches. Some false teachers in Galatia were saying, you have to fulfill the law, all the details of the law, especially the laws about circumcision, or you are not in Jesus. You are not saved. And Paul says, you know, that's not just a slight twist on the gospel, getting a few minor things wrong. That's no gospel at all. That's a false gospel. That is indeed slavery, not the freedom of the gospel. He argues that we can never, ever earn or merit salvation. Why? Because we are unable to keep this type of law, a law which begins with a changed heart and is then expressed in behavior and attitudes. He says this in chapter 2, verse 16 of Galatians, by works of the law, no one will be justified. In chapter 5, verse 3, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, really, the point should be obvious, shouldn't it? That if the entire law derives from love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, I can't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength every minute of every day. I can't love every person I encounter as I love my, I'm going to fail in those. And so there's no way that I can merit salvation, can merit coming into the presence of a perfect and holy God. And if we step back and remember that the law is a reflection of God's character To say, I merit salvation, is to say, I can make myself like God. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, too bad about that, right? There's no way I can make myself perfect from the inside out. Paul also argues that it's foolish even to think we could ever make ourselves like God. And I'm going to come back to that in a bit. So hold on to that second aspect of Paul's argument, why legalism never works. But now let's talk about slavery. Given that it is impossible for us to make ourselves like God, If I try to gain eternal life by living up to a set of rules, by law-keeping, then I am a slave, you see? I'm a slave because I will keep trying and trying and never succeed and never be good enough. 
Some of us have been in relationships with other people where we feel that way, right? That the expectations are so high, I can never live up to that. And we just always feel, I'm just trapped. I can't make myself better. And when God, the perfect one, if we think we have to live up to his set of rules, become perfect like him, we can never, ever do that. There was a a myth in the ancient world about this guy, Sisyphus, right? And his task was for all eternity to push a rock up a hill. And so he pushes the rock up a hill, and he gets right to the very top, and he's about to put it at the final spot where it'll be stable And then every time when he gets to the top, he slips and the rock rolls all the way down the hill. And so he spends eternity then going back down to the bottom of the hill, pushing it up, pushing it up, pushing it up, and he gets barely to the top again. And once again, he doesn't quite make it. (sighs) Rolls down the hill. And so for all eternity, that's what he does. People are often enslaved in this way when they try to be a Christian without a fundamental transformation worked by God in their heart. And people like that often end up saying something like, you know, I tried to be a Christian for a year, two years, three years, and I just could not do it. Or, the alternative, if you end up in a slave relationship like that, the alternative is to redefine the law. So instead of, becoming, instead of being impossible, it becomes doable, achievable. So if I instead define the law as, okay, don't smoke, don't drink, don't cheat on my spouse, go to church, tithe, read the Bible, be a hard worker, don't kick random animals... Well, that's achievable, right? I can live up to that. I can check those things off a list and say, well, therefore, look, I'm a good person. But do you see how even that is slavery? Even if we redefine the law that way, that is slavery. Because what happens when I inevitably break one of those even achievable goals? I'm going to hide. I'm going to cover up. I'm going to make excuses. I'm going to act as if I didn't do it. Or what happens when a friend or the Holy Spirit himself shows you then what the Scripture really means? Then I'm going to close my ears. I'm going to reject it. I become a slave of my own interpretation. At best, when we try to live up to the law, to prove ourselves righteous, we end up like that rich young man in Mark chapter 10. We look good on the outside. People admire us. They respect us. But we're lost. We are in slavery. So Paul is saying... Do enough good works to merit salvation is a false gospel. No gospel at all. It is the path to slavery. But there's more. 
We also need to see that rule-keeping not only can't bring us into a relationship with God, but also we do not grow as Christians via living up to a set of rules. Some people think of the Christian life as, I come into a relationship with Jesus by faith, and then I grow as a Christian through effort. And that's not what the New Testament says. This is a personal struggle for me in the 80s, after God had worked a miracle in our hearts in 1982. And I struggled a lot with the book of Galatians, actually. What does it mean not to be under the law? My upbringing, I think the problem was not what was spoken in my church, but more my own blindness. My upbringing made me think of the Christian life as living up to a set of rules. And so now, okay, God had done this miracle in my life. Now what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And it took me a good decade trying to work through that. And that's why these ideas have come through in my sermons so often. But the point is this. We do not come to God via rule-keeping. We do not grow in Christ via rule-keeping. Well, what is the alternative to that? Well, now we can get into the guts of the passage and what we want to say this morning. What happened in the fullness of time? Second heading. Well, fullness. I love this word, fullness. And it helps me to think of the, the characteristic of water tension. You know, if you, if you pour water slowly into a container, say into a glass, and just drip, 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 it'll come up, it'll come up to the top, and then what happens? You look at it closely along the edge, and you see it actually goes higher than the edge of the glass because of this water tension. And you can add another drop, and it goes a little higher, You've got this nice semicircle on top of, the top of the glass of the water. Another drop a little higher. Another drop a little higher. But at some point, what happens? Put one more drop in, and it overflows. That's the fullness of the glass. The highest point of the glass. The most water that can be in that glass. Just so. God prepared everything so that exactly the right time when that drop, Jesus' birth, came, everything overflowed and his plan became apparent. His plan came to fruition. He had promised initially to Eve in the garden, and then the ones we noted at the beginning of the sermon to Abraham, to Micah, Isaiah 9, all elaborating on a promise to David that a son of his would reign forever over a kingdom of righteousness and peace. And then Isaiah 53, the promise that the one would come, that one who come would take the punishment for our sins on himself. So those promises were a part of the preparation 
But then in the years leading up to Jesus' birth, God brought all sorts of other things together to bring about that fullness of time. The Jewish people, for centuries after their return from exile, had been ruled by one empire after another empire, and their leaders, for the most part, had abandoned the true faith. But there always was that faithful remnant God was keeping. Rome now is the empire in charge, the largest of all the empires, the most stable of all the empires, the one that would last for hundreds of years after Jesus' birth and thus would enable the church to grow and expand across many nations. Greek was widely spoken, so you had a language in which the New Testament could be written and read and understood across the many nations within the Roman Empire. So those are all part of the macro environment that God prepared for the birth of Jesus. But then the micro environment, the individuals that God prepared, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, Herod, is there for the purpose that he fulfills at the time of the birth of Jesus. And then God had Augustus declare a census so that Mary and Joseph are not in Nazareth, but are in Bethlehem when the time comes for the baby to be born and Micah chapter 5 can be fulfilled. So that's the fullness of time. One more drop. The glass overflows. So Galatians 4, 4. God sent forth his son. God is the initiator. He is the planner. He fulfills the plan. God sent forth his son, born of woman. As the angel Gabriel tells Mary in Luke chapter 2, the Holy Spirit overshadows her. So the son of God, Jesus, is a man fully man, born in the normal human way. And then is like us, tempted in all ways, just as we are yet without sin, as Hebrews 4 tells us. Born of woman, but then born under the law. There are different perspectives on what that phrase means, But I think Paul's emphasis in this passage is this. Jesus became man, and thus he is under the law, as all mankind is under the law. Again, the law is what God's character looks like when lived out by humans in a fallen world. And if the man Jesus is to merit being in God's presence, he needs, as a man, to fulfill the entire law. He's obligated, if he's going to be in the presence of the perfect, holy God, the Father, he's obligated, as a man, to reflect God's character every minute of every day. He's obligated to display God's character in every interaction with every human. He's obligated to love the one who sent him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength every minute of every day. To fall short of that 
would be to deserve punishment himself, and then he could not bear our sins. He could not bear the punishment of our sins. He would have to bear the punishment for his own. So Jesus, born under the law, had to fulfill the law in his earthly life. Verse 5. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to what end? To redeem those who were under the law. Okay? That's all humanity is under the law, and he's redeeming some from those. Redeem those people who could not fulfill the entire law themselves. Jesus fulfills it on our behalf. All of us are excluded from God's presence because of our sin. We are not perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And so he redeems us. The image is of slavery. In these times, there's no such thing as bankruptcy, right? So if I owe you money... And now something happens to me. I was planning on earning money in a certain way. The economy went bad, or I got hurt, and I could no longer work the way I planned to work. What then happened? I could sell myself as a slave to that other person to whom I owed money. He could take my person as his property so that... And that would cover the debt. And so I would be a slave to this person. But then someone else could come and pay what I owed that person. If someone else paid that debt, then I would be redeemed. I would be freed. And that's the image. Okay? Slavery was an economic arrangement, not a racial arrangement as it was in the American South. It was an economic arrangement in Roman times. So you had all sorts of different people who served as slaves. I could be redeemed from slavery by someone else paying that price. The cross is the redemption price to free us from slavery. Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's the redemption price, the freedom. So we no longer need to be slaves. There's no more punishment due us. Let that sink in. The price is paid in full. Not one iota of punishment remains for us. The debt is wiped away, completely erased once and for all at the cross. Well, what do we then become? Once we are redeemed, what do we become? This leads to our third heading, children of God. So the end of verse 5 so that we might receive adoption 
as sons. So you could translate that. So that we might receive sonship. We are no longer slaves, but sons. We are no longer slaves, but children. So don't think of the word son as implying anything about men and women, or think that men have an inside track to being sons because they're already male, right? Scripture uses both feminine and masculine images of us, God's people. We all are the bride of Christ. That's a feminine image. We are all sons of God and thus heirs, and I think Scripture uses that masculine term sons because in those times, it was primarily sons who were heirs, and so Paul is leading into the inheritance image, and so he calls us sons here. Elsewhere, we are called children of God. So, he redeems us, and we are brought into the family. We become beloved children of God. And thus we have, what the Apostle Paul calls in Romans 8, the glorious freedom of God's children. The glorious freedom of God's children. No longer slaves, but children. And if children, then free. So how did that happen? Through God's act, through God's initiation of his plan, Through his grace and mercy, in sending Jesus, he redeems us. He purchases us at a price. So we are not our own. We are bought with a price. And we become his children. And here's what I foreshadowed earlier. The second reason why ever trying to earn God's favor, to earn our relationship with God is foolish. Not only wrong, it's foolish, it's stupid. And Paul makes that point very clear in the book of Galatians. Think about this image of adoption. We have a newborn baby. What does that baby do to earn the right of adoption? Nothing. Nothing. The parents graciously, mercifully, Adopt this little baby or adopt this child, right? Some of you are adopted. You know, it wasn't because you smiled at your potential parent in exactly the right way and that just stirred their hearts, right? And then they said, oh, I've got to adopt these sweet little kids. It's completely an act of grace and mercy by the parent, And just so, just so, a complete act of grace and mercy by God to adopt us. So why try to earn his favor, right? If the whole relationship, being brought into his family, right? That can only be grace and mercy. You know, if the whole idea of salvation was simply payment for sins, A legal transaction? Well, maybe you might be able to convince yourself that, yeah, by keeping this set of rules, I don't have to, I'm not going to be liable for those sins. 
But when we see salvation as getting into God's family, you can never merit becoming someone's child. It's just idiotic. It can only be an act of grace and mercy. So then, note four steps in Paul's summary of the gospel in these verses. We've seen the first step. First step, becoming God's child by his grace through the redemption offered at the cross by Jesus. Right? That's the first step. Second step, verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we are in his family, and now he says even more, his spirit dwells in us. His spirit dwells in us. And so this is why I said the law requires, right? The law requires an inner change producing those outer effects. And so God changes us from the inside out. There are several different Old Testament, Old Testament metaphors that are used to describe this. Let me just mention three of them. Deuteronomy 30, the metaphor is God circumcises your heart. Circumcises your heart, changes you from the inside out. Jeremiah 31, God writes the law on your heart. Again, in that inner change. And then Ezekiel chapter 11, repeated in Ezekiel chapter 36, the third metaphor. He gives us a heart transplant. I remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. All three of those metaphors are showing that God changes us fundamentally from the inside. And Paul will go on to say in Galatians chapter 5 that this indwelling Holy Spirit that he sends in us, that he grants us, bears fruit in our lives. Produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then the Apostle Paul jokes, against such things there is no law. There's no law that says, thou shalt not be kind. Thou shalt not be joyful. All these are ways we take on the character of Jesus. That is who Jesus is, reflecting the character of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So by the indwelling spirit, with changed hearts, we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, I'm your child. You are my loving Father. I do not, I cannot deserve your love, your mercy, your grace. I surely do not deserve you to come live inside me, your spirit to indwell in me. But I thank you. For this redemption I have in Jesus, for sending your son to be the propitiation for my sins, for abiding in me, enabling me to abide in you. Thank you, Abba, Father. That's the second step. The Spirit in us. The third step, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
When? When do we inherit the promise? Paul is pointing to Jesus' return. That's clearer in a parallel passage in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Being glorified with him is pointing to his return, right? So, so this inheritance is what is ours when Jesus returns, when every knee bows, every tongue confesses he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. The kingdom of God comes in all its fullness. We have our inheritance. We see him face to face. We are perfected. We are exactly like him. Each one of us displaying a somewhat different aspect of who Jesus is. So that the church all together, every tribe and tongue and nation, displays marvelously the magnificence of our Lord Jesus. So, like Simeon, like the faithful remnant before that first advent, we long for Jesus' return. We long for the fulfillment of every promise, including our coming inheritance. Fourth step, final step. Briefly, look back at chapter 3, verses 26 to 28. Paul writes, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's a a clothing image. Clothe yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So everyone who's redeemed who saved by grace through faith in Jesus are sons of God, have put on Christ, have clothed themselves with Jesus. And so in this passage, Paul emphasizes this through three neither nor phrases. You see that? Now today, living in a culture that emphasizes equality, we easily miss Paul's point. For, for, for Paul's first century readers, particularly his first century Jewish readers, each pair has a seeming superior and a seeming inferior. Okay, don't miss that. Each pair has a seeming superior and a seeming inferior. Jews were ba- better than non-Jews, Greeks, to the Jews anyway. To be free is better than a, be a slave. To be a male in this culture was considered better than being a female. So there are these three hierarchical relationships, and Paul says that's not the case for those in Jesus. Your ethnicity, your class, your sex does not make you superior or inferior in the kingdom of God. The gospel is the same across sex, across class, across ethnicity. And as we read from Micah, he 
Jesus shall be great to the ends of the earth amongst every ethnicity. God will gather his children from every nation, from every class, and of course from both sexes, and we are all then one in Christ Jesus. And we see that evident in John's vision in Revelation chapter 7 of those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation saying salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. John looks and he sees those from every nation and tribe and tongue and language. The cultural differences are still apparent. The languages are still different. But they are all one in Christ Jesus with one voice. Salvation to our God and to the Lamb. We have all come to Jesus and followed him. So we all have the same status. And that status most clearly represented by the Holy Spirit dwelling in each one of us, right? We, all, we have performed different works. We've had different gifts. We have succeeded and failed in different ways. Some have committed horrible public obvious sins. Some have lived outwardly respectable lives, but all of us have Jesus. All of us have the Holy Spirit, and we are all, whatever our background, uh, we are all sons. We are all heirs. We are all joint heirs with Jesus. Each one is fully loved, fully redeemed, fully a child of God, and all of us together are glorified and perfected in Jesus. So do you see, in conclusion, the freedom that that culmination gives us? We don't have to prove anything. We're sons. We have the Spirit. We don't have to be concerned with our image. We don't have to try to convince God that we're good enough. We don't have to concern ourselves with losing our status before God. So, Desiring God Community Church, live out that freedom. Live out that freedom. Strive to live in active dependence on him, in active dependence on the Spirit. And then when you do sin, and you will, repent, confess, believe the gospel. No, you are God's precious child, not because of your rule-keeping, not because of any acts of penance that you do, but because, of the, because in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son to redeem you so that you might receive adoption as sons. And God sent forth his Spirit into your heart so that you might cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, you love me more than I can imagine. Every one of us here can have that freedom. So abandon the foolish slavery of trying to impress others, trying to impress God, trying to impress yourselves. Repent, believe the gospel, trust in Jesus. For the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
Jesus has come. He has lived the perfect life. He has died to redeem us from our, the punishment of our sins. He is risen, showing that the penalty paid is sufficient, and he has sent his Holy Spirit to convict, to circumcise our hearts, to transform us. And he has promised, he has promised, I am coming soon. So, this Advent season, be ready. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let's pray together.